Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight analysis into all the topics you're discussing in football. My name is Ian McGarry, as you know, and of course, you know that Duncan Castles is with me, as always. Today is your question's answer, but before we go to that, we want to bring some news, which will be exclusive, of course, to the Transfer Window podcast, and that is that Leicester City are planning to offer Brendan Rodgers a new contract, an extended contract on better terms, amidst interest from Arsenal, who have been trying to, uh, well, have been pursuing the possibility of Rogers succeeding Unai Emery at the Emirates. Our understanding is that Leicester will offer him an extended deal of one or possibly two years. His current deal expires in 2022. And in that time, he will have the possibility of earning £5 million more than his current deal in both wages and bonuses. This, of course, would be a bit of a coup, I think, for for Leicester Duncan with regards to um, Roger Stock being very high in the current managerial merry-go-round market. Um, Would you think that Rogers would accept this invitation rather than go to Arsenal? Or do you think that perhaps um, his slightly kind of, let's just say, answers to questions regarding his future have been um, muddled, if not a little bit kind of unclear? in the last few days? Um, I think I would take the, um, some might say, slightly cynical view that those answers to questions in which um, he mentioned that there was a release clause in his contract um, were probably not unconnected with the idea that an improved contract would be forthcoming from Leicester City. And this is, it's a pretty standard tactic from a manager who is doing it has to be said exceptionally well um, at present. Rogers is doing that and other managers in similar situations when they are riding the crest of a wave at a football club and that football club is concerned that they might lose their services. Um, you often see the outcome is um, a new contract on improved terms um, with a longer um, contract length and with an increased uh, release clause included in that deal and um, I know Leicester City paid um, 8.8 million pounds of compensation to Celtic when they took Rodgers from the Scottish club last season um, for Rodgers and the assistance he brought with him from Celtic Park. Um, do you know if the what the compensation clause will be on his new deal with Leicester City? Well, I understand that at the moment, the current compensation clause is not the £14 million, which has been widely reported. It's actually much less than that. It's around £8.5 million um, to release him from his current contract. Uh, I understand that the new contract that Leicester are proposing or will propose to Rogers, that the release clause will increase to £10 million and possibly more. But, interestingly, Duncan, that Rogers has insisted or will insist that his exit clause for that contract will include named clubs, which he will be allowed to speak to before any decision is made on his future. 
and that one of those clubs will be Manchester United. Again, that doesn't come as a great surprise to me. Um, we've said in the podcast before that one of Brendan Rodgers' long-term ambitions in football has been to manage Manchester United and that uh, he even considered um, that long-term ambition when he made the decision to go to Liverpool um, several years back, uh, wondering whether taking the Liverpool job would prevent him from uh, fulfilling that ambition to manage Manchester United. So um, uh, it makes perfect sense that he would want that as a written um, club identified as one that he'd be allowed to speak to should they be interested in hiring him. And um, and I guess it's not impossible, given where Manchester United are at the moment um, and given how well Rodgers has been doing in the Premier League this season and how his stock has risen to um, a level amongst um, the media and uh, the punditry that hasn't been seen before. Um, that uh, he would be a credible um, candidate for the Manchester United job um, once the decision is taken um, to dismiss Willie Gunnar Solskjaer, um, which uh, should not be particularly long coming as long as results continue in the vein they have for Solskjaer. Of course, the, his Premier League win rate below 28% um, heading into this evening's match against his predecessor as Manchester United manager, Jose Mourinho. Um, that is his uh, rate since being uh, made the permanent uh, manager of Manchester United in a long-term contract earlier this year. Um, and obviously he doesn't have his, his troubles to uh, search for at present. And uh, the press conference he gave yesterday um, I would say possibly 70% of the questions were about his future, um, uh, about his concerns over um, reassurances he had or had not been given by the board, how often he talked to the board uh, about uh, long-term strategy and, and basically how he spent a lot of time firefighting and, and, and trying to reassure supporters that his plan and the board's plan was on track, that they, they spoke on a frequent basis and he had no concerns about his future employment at the club. We will come to Manchester United in due course uh, with your questions, of course. Um, I think it's interesting, Duncan, that in terms of the context of the Arsenal position, um, obviously Brendan Rodgers um, has been mentioned and indeed we believe has been approached unofficially with regards to uh, whether or not he would be interested in that job. I spoke to someone close to Brendan the other day and uh, specifically asked that person um, their opinion. Um, would Brendan take the, uh, the Arsenal job? And the person laughed before replying, as long as he can take his players with him. <laughs> so says, says a lot about um, how things are viewed from the outside looking in on Arsenal at the moment we've had a lot of questions and we're not going to sort of read out every single person but we do appreciate your questions as always regarding um, the situation at the Emirates Duncan it looks like there's we know there's been um, a certain amount of preparation for an Emery sacking certainly if we're to believe Josh Cronk's interview, which we quoted on Monday's podcast, saying that for several weeks they had discussed different options. But when a short list appears to 
uh, have at least 10 names in it. It's not really a shortlist. And it does seem that there's a degree of at least a lack of preparation, if not mismanagement, with regarding um, where they're going to go from here. Um, do you think Arsenal are any closer to appointing a new permanent head coach? Or indeed, do you believe what some people are saying, and I'm talking about Arsenal legends here, who say that perhaps Lundberg, if he gets that bounce effect that Solskjaer experienced when he was appointed as interim manager of Manchester United, then he has a chance of being appointed full-time? I think he has a chance. I think um, Arsenal have sold the story that they have a lot of confidence in Lundberg, who, um, remember, is a former teammate of the, the director of football, Edu, um, and was brought back to the club um, after a, an unsuccessful spell assisting in uh, the Bundesliga. Um, and, he, you know, he, he comes across as a credible figure to the supporters. I think he speaks quite well in press conferences. Um, he uh, is proposing a plan um, to to improve results on the field, focusing very much on the what he calls the weaknesses in, in Arsenal's transition game um, and saying he, he's been disappointed by the way opponents are able to turn one missed pass into uh, an attack uh, and a shot on Arsenal's goal um, simply by getting up the field quickly and that that has to be resolved. So, um, yes, I think he has the opportunity to stay in situ for several weeks, mainly because the board are wanting to go through a thorough process similar to what they tried to do before appointing Unai Emery of, um, int- of, of drawing up a long list of candidates and interviewing those candidates and then de- making um, the best decision on that appointment. And that takes time. Therefore, Lundberg has the opportunity to, to turn things around themselves. And, and, and it's clear from the way Lundberg is talking, he's not um, ruling out the possibility of getting the job on a permanent basis. Uh, and he knows this is his chance. Um, and obviously, he would be uh, the cheap solution. And one of the factors Arsenal are considering here is that they um, are reluctant to pay compensation to a club like Leicester City um, to hire a manager who's in situ. So again, that works in Lundberg's favour. Um, I think there, one of the reasons this is happening at Arsenal is you have the Cronkies um, having ultimate jurisdiction over who this new manager will be and Josh Kroenke being directly involved in the appointment process. So you, although you have Edu there and although you have Raul Sanyehi, so you have two very experienced individuals in football with a range of contacts who would be perfectly capable of coming up with an appointment um, between them or individually and installing that person. Neither of them has the authority to do that. Um, this task hasn't been a de- delegated to Sanyehi and Edu, um, and it, it's a task that's being shared amongst senior board members and the owners. Therefore, Sanyehi, who has been working on this um, process for several weeks now, has been preparing in case Unai Emery needed to be dismissed. And we reported this very early on the, on the Transfer Window podcast that Sanyehi had been doing that. Um, so he has talked 
to candidates and talked to representatives of candidates and assessed whether they'd be interested in the job and looked at, at what it would cost to bring them in and what they'd want as um, managerial appointments. He hasn't been able to take it any further than adding them to that list. And the list will need to be rounded out because that's what the Cronkies want. And, uh, and an assessment process gone through before a final decision is made. Well, Arsenal are not the only club who are potentially in the market for a new manager, obviously. Um, the pressure continues to mount on Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, as Duncan's already mentioned in the pod today. Um, we've got a couple of very um, thorough questions, Duncan. Uh, one from Mike Searle, who's at Mike Searle1978, um, who asks, if a change of manager doesn't happen at Manchester United before January, are they in danger becoming a mid-table side for the next three to five years and there's a change of ownership and the removal of Ed Woodward more important than the manager's situation. Thanks for reading out in the pod. You're welcome, Mike. I'll hand over to Duncan to answer that particular question. Well, how do you define mid-table club? Um, if you define well, well, the ninth at the moment, so <laughs> I, suppose, there, I suppose that says it a lot. They're certainly a mid-table club in, in terms of current league position. Um, if you include six in the league as a mid-table club, then they have finished six uh, or below on multiple occasions under Edward Woodward's um, stewardship of the club. So you could argue that they've been at least a marginal mid-table club for some time now. Uh, you have the outlier of the of their uh, second place finish um, in the last full season under the uh, Solskjaer's predecessor as manager, but that is the outlier. That's the only time Manchester United have finished um, within a position of the winners of the Premier League since Woodward took over as executive vice chairman and since the Glazers took effectively full control of the football club when they got rid of Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, offering him a directorship in return um, for retiring as manager. And when David Gill stepped aside um, as chief executive and and left the day-to-day running of the football club, that allowed the Glazers to implement more of what they wanted in terms of uh, decisions across the whole gamut of the club. And, you know, you talk to people who worked at Manchester United, who have worked at Manchester United under the Glazers, and some of them have said it publicly. You have Louis van Gaal talking about how it's not a football club, but it's a commercial club. Others talk to them privately, and they'll tell you that the Glazers wanted to sign off on the most ludicrously small of decisions, decisions such as changing um, the desks, the furniture at the training ground um, in one office would need to sign off from the Glazers, um, control over things like handing over signed football shirts uh, to supporters and friends, um, access to tickets for guests at, at the ground. Um, Even Sir Alex Ferguson as well, Duncan, was included in that. He had to apply to Ed Woodward for an extra ticket in the director's box when he wanted to bring a friend. So that that shows you the degree of micromanagement and cost control that the Glazers consider to be important to the running of a club which for a big chunk of their ownership time has had the biggest revenues in world football. Um, 
therefore, you, 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 you look at that overall pattern of Glazer Woodward control and you have to say that the trajectory of the club has been towards a mid-table Premier League outfit in terms of performance, in terms of actual results on the field. Now, uh, the question was whether Solskjaer staying there beyond January would accelerate that process and leave them as a mid-table club for three to five years. And really the evidence of Solskjaer's managerial reign, which is almost a year old now, is exactly that. Um, he, he's presided over a period of historically bad results. Um, he has just four Premier League wins this season. Um, he has uh, presided over negative performances and negative results against some of the weaker teams in the Premier League and, uh, and some of the, the newly promoted outfits. Um, he publicly insists that the plan is a good one and that the plan will um, bear fruit down the line, that the mood in at Old Trafford at the training ground is far better than it's perceived to be from the outside. So the story he's trying to tell is that myself, Ed Woodward and the Glazers have a strategy that will solve the problems that were um, there when I came into the club and you just have to be patient. The results will come. It's going well behind the scenes. Um, it's just a few issues on the field which is preventing it from being converted into results now. You talk to people who know the game and are involved in that club um, and know what is going on in the background, they don't tell you the same story. In fact, they laugh at these kind of statements um, and tell a story of a guy who is out of his depth as manager, whose training is relatively archaic, um, who has implemented a physical training regime that has resulted in uh, muscular injury after muscular injury basically since uh, March um, period last year before they played Paris Saint-Germain in the home game. It, they've had a catalogue of muscular injuries and that despite the pre-season that Solskjaer said would make a fundamental difference to the fitness, the robustness of his players and the way he was able to play football. Um, you know, He was asked yesterday about the kind of position he picked the club in uh, when it was left to him by Jose Mourinho. And that was quite a pointed question and obviously one that was uh, designed to extract an answer for him, which might be controversial. And, and his, his response was, I, I can't remember what league position we were in when he left, but I've, I've had now 50 games since then. Uh, and then he's, he kind of, kept um, stalling over an answer and it is now, it was a club that it isn't where it should have been and it's not where we want it to be and uh, we know we have to improve so we're working hard to put that right. Um, so, you know, his claim was he didn't even remember that the league position he inherited the club in was sixth uh, and the current league position is ninth and they've won just four games this season. Uh, I think the game tonight and the game this weekend against Manchester City are very important for him for the reasons we discussed on Monday's podcast. But I think the, um, that Mike's question here is on the money. Um, Manchester United are headed in the wrong direction. Willie Gunnar Solskjaer has accelerated 
that process of heading in the wrong direction. And the longer the Glazers and Woodward decide to retain him in position, the more likely it is that Manchester United turn into a club that is consistently in mid-table and consistently out of the Champions League spots. And that is where they're headed at present. They are, for the first time in their Adidas contract, they're headed for two consecutive seasons without Champions League football, which will have substantial financial penalties for the club next season. But at least he wears a suit on the touchline, isn't that right, Scolzi? Yes, it is. Whereas Freddie Lundberg's is in the cleaners, apparently. Um, ben Allen um, has taken this particular subject beyond Solskjaer, I believe, Duncan, um, because I think you and I are in agreement, and many of our listeners certainly are, that Solskjaer's time is, uh, uh, days certainly are numbered as manager at Old Trafford. Ben asks, given one, lack of control over spending or departures, two, Edward as de facto director of football. Three, the burden of poor players on bloated long-term contracts. Four, scouting setup. Five, poisonous Pogba presence. And here's the key question. How can any manager succeed at Manchester United? Well, well Ben's obviously a, a consistent listener to the podcast because he's picked up on all of the issues that we regularly talk about when we discuss Manchester United's problems. Um, there seem to be a lot of people who think that the only uh, thing we focus on is Solskjaer. Um, it's absolutely not the case. You go through the podcast, we consistently talk about there being issues at every level of the club. And and yeah, I think this is the question. I had this discussion with um, with a, someone who's, who's very much involved in the world of football this morning. Um, would Maurizio Pochettino be, in his words, daft enough to take Manchester United as they are with all the inherent problems, with all the obvious problems. Um, and it's actually a question I'm, I'm intrigued to, to find out the answer to because what I'm hearing from people close to Pochettino is Manchester United is a job that he's targeting, um, that there have been conversations uh, with Ed Woodward about taking on that job. Uh, and the... It does look very much like Pochettino is extremely keen. And the question is, is he keen on his conditions uh, with control handed over, um, possibly with the, with the permission to bring the director of football in of his choosing um, to tear the club structures up and rebuild them in a way that will make uh, that massive resource of revenue that Manchester United have be used more efficiently uh, for producing results on the football field, both short-term, medium-term and long-term? Um, or is he prepared to do it under any conditions? Or is he signalling this interest to give him more leverage with the other large clubs in Europe who are interested in hiring him? Um, I think, I, and we discussed this a bit on Monday's podcast, I think that the way... Manchester United are set up at the moment, even with all their problems, has to be attractive to a manager in the sense that you know you can improve on Solskjaer's performances because you know he's not very good as a football manager. So you trust your skills if you're Maurizio Pochettino to go in to the same dressing room with the same uh, training ground set up, with the same chief executive to work under and produce better results on the football field because you train the players better 
you select tactics better, you understand the game better, you make better in-game decisions, you handle the players in a way that you don't lose uh, the faith of important individuals within the squad. You don't make Axel Tuanzebe captain against Rochdale and anger Paul Pogba um, by doing so to the extent that he isn't taking a penalty in a penalty shootout when he's a designated penalty kick taker. You also have are coming into a club where Ed Woodward and, and now has done this formally on record in an extensive interview about the club has been selling a story that it will take several years to get Manchester United back to the level where they can compete for the Premier League title and compete in Europe. That's the official club line now. Multiple transfer windows required to complete the cultural reboot and in inverted commas and uh, play X-Factor football with X-Factor players uh, in the, the right Manchester United way and throw in some um, Old Trafford DNA, etc., etc., etc. You might consider that to be special pleading on behalf of Woodward. Um, I would. It well, doesn't Duncan, really by, matter. By my, but Duncan, by my calculation, since Ferguson um, retired, Woodward has been has presided over twelve transfer windows in the six years in that time, and they've still not got it right. So how can he, with all, you know? disingenuous or genuine um, plea bargaining say it's going to take several transfer windows to transform this when he has presided over what's now going on at the club well his, his argument is that he now has a brilliant recruitment staff who sift through thousands of pieces of data before making decisions on any um, uh, recruitment appointment and he trusts them combined with Willie Gunnar Solskjaer who in his argument was an excellent uh, manager to be working with in in the last transfer window, and therefore they will they will get it right going forward. But yeah, you you make a a good point that um, why should you trust a man who's got it wrong time after time and and presided over the building of the squad with having sign off um, from the club's point of view on all of those deals, obviously with the Glazers also having sign-off, but Woodward signs off and then the Glazers sign off on these deals. Um, but the point for from Pochettino's perspective or any other significant manager, like Brendan Rodgers, uh, Max Allegri coming in, is you come in with expectations lowered to the floor. I mean, there is not another club of Manchester United's status, revenue and significance where you can come in and have the chief executive saying on record, we expect it to be multiple years before we compete for the Premier League title um, or the National League title in the country they're in. There is no club like that. There, I don't think there's ever been a club like that um, who have the level of resources United have, the expectation upon them, and the, and the formal on-record position being this is going to take a while. So in, in one sense, that's a really nice um, platform to come into as a manager because that the bar is set so low and you you basically have a you know a, a kind of contractual agreement from the club that you will be given lots of time to solve it and if you're you know if you're a half decent manager who has has the experience of working at top clubs before and has worked in the transfer market with these level of players then you're going to back yourself to be able to improve matters even though 
you can see it's a problem club. So I, I think that's the probably the, the silver lining on the cloud of the Glazers and the Woodward for Manchester United fans is they can still expect to get a top-class appointment into place Solskjaer because top-class managers are still interested in being the next Manchester United manager. Duncan, I remember speaking to um, the legendary UV manager Marcello Lippi um, after it was announced that Ferguson would retire in 2013 and I put the question to him, would you be the man, would you, not that he was obviously a candidate um, at the time, but I said, would you like to be the man to succeed Sir Alex Ferguson? And he said, no, the perfect job is the man who succeeds, the man who succeeds Sir Alex Ferguson, because then you don't have to be in his shadow for the first uh, few months after he retires. It seems we're still waiting for that man to succeed Sir Alex Ferguson six years later and make a success of it. I wonder what Lippy thinks now. We're going to change tact here and do a couple of quick-fire questions, Duncan. Um, try and fit in as much as we can to our Your Questions Answered Wednesday podcast. The Long Road at Ahmed Zubair. Uh, welcome, Ahmed, to the podcast, and thank you for listening. It says, you regularly come out with, as we said last week exclusively during your pod, can we find out some of your sources without naming anyone? Duncan, can we find out some of your sources without naming anyone? <laughs> Uh, no, you can't. <laughs> Self-answering self question, isn't it? No, we can't. It is. And, and, but just to go into a bit more detail on that, the reason we're able to break these stories, the reason we're able to give you this information weeks, months uh, in advance is because we have multiple sources in sport. They talk to us uh, because they know that they will never be exposed, their names will never be mentioned, and therefore they can trust us with information that they're they're not able to say on a public basis. Um, it takes a long time to develop these relationships and, and maintaining the relationships. Um, one of the fundamental things is you keep them anonymous and you keep that information that, uh, that they want to get into the public domain but cannot put into the public domain themselves. Um, you keep it from being directly attributed to them. And that as we say, is why we bring the news before it becomes news. I want to give a belated shout out to one of the best Twitter handles I've seen, Murder on Zidane's Floor. Uh, <laughs> you actually asked us a question of Brendan Rogers and Arsenal, which we mentioned at the top of the podcast. So Murder on Zidane's Floor, that's quality. Keep your questions coming. Thank you very much. I'm going to surprise Duncan now with a regular contributor to our um, timelines on Twitter, Max, who's at Dismaxia. Uh, I think he's a Manchester United fan I'm pretty sure he is from the questions and answers and the engagement we have with Max but he has asked a very good question actually Duncan top three derbies in the world in your opinion discounting the vicious Dundee derby obviously Duncan give us your three top derbies in the world and I will happily give you mine as well there's only one derby that really counts and that is the Dundee derby if you haven't intended one then you, you should do so as soon as possible and be sure to support Dundee United get, when you go there. Get, yes, get yourself to Tanadici on a dull drich nicht in Dundee for the derby. Uh, I would say, Max, to answer your question, I am slightly biased here, but if you've never been to the old firm, pick it up soon, mate. It is something to be believed. Rangers versus Celtics, Celtics versus Rangers. 
Uh, I would say Barcelona Real Madrid, El Clasico, sensational as well. Been in many of those. And the one I've only been to once, but I would certainly recommend in my top three is Boca Juniors versus River at the Bombanera. Sensational, absolutely sensational. So they're uh, discounting that Daldrich Nicht in Dundee. Um, those are the three I would obviously recommend. Now, Rishi Raja Duncan has um, posted as a question regarding uh, the mercurial, let's say, talent that is Jaden Sancho. He has said, Hi Duncan, is there any truth in Sancho to Liverpool rumours? And how likely is it that Liverpool do some business in the January window? Um, well, from Jaden Sancho's camp, uh, there's clearly been uh, an indication that Liverpool are seriously interested in hiring the player. Um, Jaden Sancho camp are briefing that they have four um, clubs that are in contact with them and are of interest to them. Um, those are Liverpool, Manchester United, Real Madrid, and Barcelona. Um, the situation is such that it looks very much like Jadon Sancho will be sold by Borussia Dortmund, um, possibly ahead of schedule. Um, they initially wanted to retain him for the full duration of this season. They always planned to sell the player and make a very significant profit on him, um, asking price €100 million Euros plus. Uh, but they wanted to keep him for another season uh, before making that sale with the hope that, the, that his value would increase this season. Unfortunately for them, uh, this season has not been at the same level as his, as his uh, first full season in German football. Um, he has come into conflict with Dortmund's manager. Um, he's been substituted off. Um, before half time in a match, um, he's been reprimanded publicly by the manager o- over various matters, and um, Sancho is not happy with that, and his representatives are not happy with that. And uh, I think because of that situation, there is an opportunity now for clubs to make offers in the January window and uh, and get the player over early. Um, I think. For Liverpool, it makes sense. Um, you would be buying an English player. Um, you'd be buying a player with the with a view of retaining him for potentially over a decade. Um, his numbers in terms of assists and goals, uh, assists in particular, are very, very good, especially um, for a player of his age. If his development continues and he continues to improve and he continues to uh, increase those numbers, down the line, then you have an exceptional player on your hands, and um, and you could see Sancho fitting into Liverpool's attacking system, um, and also adding uh, possibly an extra degree of creativity to their team in, in terms of being that player who could uh, break down packed opposition lines. And they're they're usually at present are dependent on set pieces for doing that. Um, and that's been a, a major part of their um, success in getting further up the Premier League table and putting themselves into a position where um, only they can lose the Premier League title this season. Um, so there is a rationale for Liverpool trying to buy Sancho. 
Um, and it's clear that, um, that Sancho's representatives want to bring Liverpool into the equation in terms of getting the best offer and the best location for their player for his next club. So my information, Duncan, on this, uh, and I admit it comes mainly um, from Germany rather than from um, Sancho's agents, um, mainly around Borussia Dortmund. And that is that the player's attitude has changed since his England debut, that he um, seems to um, believe his own hype uh, in the English media, which is that he is the new golden boy elect um, of the England national team. And certainly his... um, record as an England player is, is impressive. Um, but as you said, his um, club performances have dipped uh, in the first half of this season compared to where they were last season. Uh, he's still young. He's certainly, from what I understand, um, is very coachable. And therefore, at his age, um, there is room for significant improvement on what is clearly Um, a very talented individual as it stands. However, there remains um, some, uh, I think there are questions to be answered. Uh, Dortmund believe that um, the player's attitude isn't correct and that perhaps his value will never realise any more for them in their circumstance than it is now because there is interest from English clubs. And of course, as we know and we constantly report, that the English market is overinflated in terms of price, not just in transfer fees, but in contracts given to players as well. So any club buying Sancho, I think, would have to factor in, um, or you would like to think they would factor in, uh, that kind of due diligence with regards to what his attitude is, um, how can that be uh, converted into a better um, level of performance more consistently. Um, week in, week out, etc. So uh, you'd have to, I think, f- ask yourself what is the value of the player and his contract over four or five years? You'd think five years would be the minimum that any club signing a player for in excess of 80 million euros um, would want. So, yeah, I, I just think there are some questions to be answered regarding Sancho. Um, one uh, fairly senior person at a Premier League who's involved in both scouting and recruitment. When I asked about Sancho, his answer was, and please tell me if you agree with this, Duncan, he's a bit Zaha-ish. And his explanation of why he was a bit Zaha-ish was? That Zaha is a player who flatters a lot uh, in terms of his performances and the odd goals he scores, but doesn't actually produce consistently. Yeah, I think that's obviously the question mark with Sancho. He has has an ability on the ball and he does unpredictable things which create chances for his team. Um, Now, you have players like who, in that kind of mould, you have Raheem Sterling who was kind of one-dimensional in his play as a younger player and, uh, and very ineffective at taking chances for a big chunk of his career, but has now turned himself into one of the elite attacking players in England um, and elite attacking players in Europe, I think it's fair to say about Sterling now, and is far more efficient in, in terms of end product for the team. 
Now, if, I think that's what the person I was speaking to was kind of inferring, Duncan, was that um, Zaha, Sancho have got obvious talent, but does that talent significantly and consistently produce goal chances, goals themselves, assists, in the way that you've just spoken about Ryan Sterling and the way that I think um, James Madison is currently doing at Leicester City? Yeah, and that's that's what you have. That's the gamble you take with someone like Sancho. You have to work out whether you can turn him into that Raheem Sterling player or close to it. Um, whether he has the same drive and motivation and willingness to improve himself that Sterling has demonstrated that he has, and and I think this would be a big element of Liverpool's decision making because you can't go into Liverpool's team and not contribute um, in areas beyond just chance creation. Klopp's system is dependent on hard work from every player in the system. Um, Okay, he has allowed uh, Mohamed Salah uh, to do less running, um, particularly in previous seasons than other players, and concentrate on the attacking side of the game. But Salah was doing that while scoring in virtually every match, or uh, either scoring or creating a goal in virtually every match. Sancho is not at that level yet. So the calculation from Liverpool's perspective is obviously going to be, is does he have the right mentality that he can appropriately fit into our system and do the, the hard running uh, and the pressing? that's required to be part of the team unit because Liverpool, although they have you know very high quality now in multiple positions in the field, not in every position in the field, but in probably in the majority of the positions in the field, they now have high quality players. Um, everyone has to, to work hard to the system and the system is, is still more important than the individuals at Liverpool. So that that's the, the question mark for me in terms of, I hear from Sancho's end that Liverpool are greatly interested and he is interested in Liverpool. The question for me is, is the degree of interest at Liverpool the same as it is from Jane Sancho and his representatives? Well, Sancho would certainly have to displace um, either Sadio Mane or Mo Salah in that uh, trident front three, um, something which I think would be a fairly kind of, um, you know, stern test for any player in world football right now, um, given where Liverpool are. So if he wants regular first-team football and he wants to actually have the impact that he believes he can, then um, he would have to be superior to either Mane or Salah. So I think in terms of his career and his playing time prospects, that's something you have to consider before making a decision about going to Anfield or indeed anywhere else. Although I think Manchester United's interest uh, might be more um, befitting of his game time prospects uh, given where they are right now and what they need in terms of attacking midfielders so of course this has been the Wednesday edition of the Transfer Window podcast, it's been your questions answered, we're very grateful for those questions, we hope that we have shed some light Uh, on the topics that you're discussing in the ones that we have managed to answer today. And thank you very much for submitting them. And please keep doing so. And we will, of course, uh, be back a week from now with the next edition of Your Questions Answered. As always, and as traditional and as the highlight of the week, of course, for many of you, 
it's the Donkey Award. And this week, um, we are very, very pleased and privileged to name the Donkey Award in honour of the great man himself, Jose Mourinho, for culinary shortcomings in football after he gave uh, an answer to why he lived at the Lowry Hotel in Manchester during his two-and-a-half-year tenure at Old Trafford. He said that room service was an essential part of his life because the only thing he could cook is sausage and eggs. Now, we actually, Josie will be nominated in his own uh, category here. Uh, I'm just going to open the golden envelope. There we go, Duncan. And uh, I think there's um, some good contenders here, to be honest. We'll start with Josie, though, because um, famously, uh, just days before um, his first raid at Chelsea was um, ended um, after a Champions League draw with Rosenberg, he spoke about the club's um, activity in the transfer window prior in uh, the summer of 2007. Um, in which they signed Steve Sidwell, Tal Ben-Ahim and Claudio Pizarro um, and uh, made an analogy with um, if you're making an omelette, you have to get class one eggs. I'll let you explain the rest of that one. Uh, there's also the um, how do you solve a problem like Paul Pogba? Well, one of the things that he did to try and set himself back into life in Manchester was he flew in his own private chef from Turin. Uh, this is not unusual. Harry Kane has a private chef, as does Ilke Gundahan uh, at Manchester City. And we are reliably informed that this can cost up to £1,000 per day in the time that the chef actually takes, uh, i.e. his charge, plus the ingredients. So a grand a day for your own chef? Well, I think there's restaurants out there that are probably a bit cheaper. My own personal favourite has to be Philip Neville, brother and obviously... A uh, friend of Gary Neville, a great friend of this podcast, who we're still waiting to come back to his honour invitation to join us and uh, talk about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who infamously now admitted that he had to call his wife after he retired from football to ask instructions on how to make instant coffee. Um, he laughed it off at the time. I think he still laughs it off. But in terms of culinary shortcomings, that's got to be one of the great ones. Uh, Duncan, it's up to you to decide the winner, but, you know, I say there's, a, there's a, some good contenders there. Well, I'm a bit disappointed that um, your friend Brendan Rogers hasn't made this shortlist, given... Oh, give, yeah, I knew you'd mention this. Given, uh, given his famous uh, statement about how he loved walking or running the streets of Liverpool and, and, and smelling the, the mints cooking, which, which of course is something that anyone who's been to a Brendan Rogers press conference can, can often smell is the, the mints cooking when Brendan starts to speak. To, but, to be fair, that's, that's quite a Scottish thing, smell your mints as well as ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, Mourinho went into some depth uh, talking about why he stayed in the Lowry Hotel and it wasn't just uh, uh, because he could have uh, food prepared for him and he didn't cook it was also so someone could uh, do his washing for him because he's never done his washing and a little story I was told was he, he did indeed um, send all of his laundry to the Lowry to be looked after apart from his socks apparently the, the, the charge for having your socks washed at Lowry was so large even Jose Mourinho blanched at it and he used to take his socks back to London with him to have his um, have them washed at his own family home there. So a little added detail. Now, look, don't think he talked about in the press conference yesterday. That's the only get from the Transfer Window podcast. 
Jose Mourinho's socks too expensive to wash in the Lowry. Love it. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, that, that particular press conference, I think the question, I think the question that elicited um, some severe anger from Roman Abramovich came from our friend Martin Lipton. Um, and uh, his answer was, if you have no eggs, you have no omelette in the supermarket, you have class one, class two, and class three eggs. Some are more expensive than others, and some give you better omelettes. So when the class one eggs are in Waitrose and you cannot get there, you have a problem. Um, he didn't specify what class of egg he thought Tal Ben Haim and Steve Sidwell were, but I don't think he felt he'd bought them in Waitrose. Um, but I think Pogba beats him with his private chef um, and uh, you wonder if he takes a private chef around the world with him when he's uh, having these long <laughs> rehabilitation periods um, I wonder if he gets his socks washed in the hotels in Dubai and Miami that's my real question or, or, or does Paul Pogba have so much money he only wears his socks once this is a question that, that we need with these, these we need answer, to answer the he's answering um, but you're right no one can beat Phil Neville in this regard, <laughs> which isn't a phrase that was often said when he was a fullback on the pitch. But uh, yeah, if you don't know and you have to call your wife up um, to ask how to make an instant cup of coffee, um, you are definitely the worst culinary expert out there. So this award goes to Phil Neville, and I think that's his first. Philip Neville, you, the, the, your career is now complete. Uh, you've won the Champions League, you've won the Premier League, you've won the FA Cup, the League Cup. Now you have won the most important trophy of all, which is the Donkey Award for culinary shortcomings in football. We will be sending that to you direct. Uh, I'm sure you'll be waiting on it. Um, obviously, it has to be signed for, so make sure you're in uh, and track that parcel accordingly. This has been Wednesday's Transfer Window podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. We thank you again for your questions. And, of course, for your debate and the fact you guys are always there for us after the podcast, before the podcast, engaging with us on Twitter and, of course, at, on social media, on our Instagram and Facebook accounts, which is at Transfer Podcast, the same as it is on Twitter at Transfer Podcast. And, of course, individually at Duncan Castle, at Garbo SJ for me. And um, as we know, and you guys have said, even in our responses, uh, on social media, get yourself uh, onto iTunes, give us a five star review, and the community grows, so does the debate. We will be back on Friday. Until then, we will see you through the transfer window. Thanks for listening. Hey.